this week on the Backtable podcast. And the, the surgeons that were in the CT control room were basically planning uh, right, right there and then how to crack open the chest and uh, try to get this wire out. Wow. And, and, and Ivan was like, uh, hold on. And they had already done like a cut down at the neck and tried to grab it, but it wasn't there anymore. So it was now somewhere in the, in the IVC. And so Ivan was like, hold on guys, hold on guys. I, I think, I think we may be able to do something about this. Like he wasn't sure because I mean, he had done this before, but he was, he was like, okay, let me talk to Dr. Newsom. So he went over, he was like, Dr. Newsom, is there anything we can do about this? He's just like, yeah, of course. And one of the nurses that came there with her actually happened to bring a snare with him. So we had one snare and so she just got uh, IJ access and, and picked the wire out and there was like 30 people in the room. I mean, like the surgeons were there, the emergency department were there and like, it was like, for them, it was like absolute magic of yeah. like how someone can just like go in and, and pick the wire out, you know, in a matter of minutes. And yeah, I think that, that really goes to show the kind of impact that IR can have. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a, a word from our sponsor, Medtronic. The New England Journal of Medicine has published big news for AV fistula patients. Learn more about the impact AV access trial to see how the impact AV drug coated balloon can affect reintervention rates for patients with kidney disease. Visit Medtronic.com slash AVDCB for more information. This is Aaron Fritz as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our special guest today, Dr. Fabian Loggop. Welcome, Fabian. Hi, how's it going? Thank you so much for having me. Sure, sure. So uh, we've been excited to have you on. Um, we, got, we got connected through a, a mutual friend, and uh, I, I was able to learn more about your project, The Road to IR, I'm going to let you talk a little bit more about the road to IR, but I did want to have you give us a quick introduction about yourself, where you're coming from and where you're at. Yeah, so I'm Fabian. I'm the uh, current chief resident in interventional radiology at Yale New Haven Hospital in uh, Connecticut. I'm originally from Munich in Germany, and I moved over here after medical school in 2015 for my training and uh, have been here ever since. Great, great. And so tell us a little bit about you know, the story of how you first got involved with Road to IR, and then we'll kind of get into what's unique about it and and the the how the, the program's organized. Sure. Yeah. So I'll have to go back a couple of years for that um, when, when this first when this program really first got started. So back in 2017, when I was a second year radiology resident, I was always like very interested in global health, but I, I didn't really know how to how to go about it with combining it with interventional radiology. So when I was a second year resident, one of my faculty, Dr. Frank Minja, who's a neuroradiologist and who's originally from Tanzania, asked me if I wanted to join him there. So he, um, he's been going there every half a year and usually brings along some fourth year uh, residents. And one of the fourth year residents that year couldn't go with him uh, on pretty short notice due to a, a family emergency. So Frank reached out to me because uh, he knew I was interested in, in global health and asked me if I want to uh, join on short notice. And I said, yeah, of course I want to come. So I went there with him. And um, my goal for that trip was essentially to figure out like what's the status of interventional radiology in Tanzania. Like, I mean, I didn't really have any idea. And also Frank didn't really know. I mean, he wasn't aware of anything. So our assumption was that there's probably not much going on. 
So, so I went there um, for two weeks and, and did a little assessment, basically see what, what's currently being done. And to, to sum it up in a, in a nutshell, there was essentially nothing. There's not a single intervention radiologist in, in Tanzania, and they, there was nobody doing any image-guided procedures. The only thing that they were doing was the pathologists were doing FNAs in CT, but they weren't really using CT to guide them. So they weren't using the laser grid. They weren't using like a radiopaque grid to, to find the entry point. They were basically, they did a CT scan and then they basically just stuck the needle wherever they thought it could be. And then they did another CT and checked where it was. And then they adjusted and at some point sort of got into the lesion. But like I said, only FNA, nobody was even doing core needle biopsies. And we're talking about like the national hospital of a country with 60 million people. Okay. So that's a 3000 bed institution. Nobody doing the core needle biopsy, nobody doing abscess drainages, nobody doing nephrostomies, nobody doing biliary drains, nobody, let alone doing like UFI or, or anything for that matter. So, so that, that was basically the status when I first got there. And while I was there, I met three really amazing residents there who were also second year residents there at the time, Eric, Ivan, and Aza, who now have become really uh, great friends and sort of my uh, partners in this, in this whole project. And, and we basically decided, okay, we have to get IR started in Tanzania. And since there was no interventional radiologist in Tanzania, we, we figured, okay, we have to bring the expertise there. So, so as it was done with my, with my two weeks stay there and we we're like, sort of uh, going back to the airport, I was talking to Frank in the car and we said, okay, uh, if we do this, like we, we basically have to do it big. Like we can't just go there and we have a year and do a little bit of, of IR because that may work in diagnostic radiology, but in interventional radiology, you need the hands-on training, you need continuity. Uh, you need continuity of care. If, if, if you do a procedure, let's say you put a nephrostomy to someone, chances are that that tube is going to get uh, obstructed and you can't really have a break for half a year without anyone being there to, to take care of it. So, so our goal was to send 10 teams to Tanzania per year and to start training the first generation of interventional radiologists and also start training nurses and technologists. To, together with with the residents, and that's basically what we did. So that's yeah, that's really interesting. So it sounds like originally you were going over there just to what provide kind of provide general radiology services and training. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So so Frank has been going to Tanzania. I mean, he grew up there, and then and then he moved to the states for his uh, medical training and residency. But after finishing residency, since he's been an attending, he's been going there every half a year. And since he's a neuroradiologist, he was focused on teaching neuroradiology. And he went, like I said, every every six months and sort of just gave courses there and, and started instilling some of that specialized neuroradiology knowledge because at the current time, there weren't any uh, subspecialty training programs in Tanzania. So everyone just trains three years as a general radiologist. Yeah. And that's interesting. So when you, so at the time you were, you're, you're general radiology resident. Yeah, exactly. I was in okay. my second year of training. Yeah. So I mean, I'm an IR resident. So I did three years of diagnostic radiology and then two years of interventional. So now I'm in my second and final year of interventional radiology. But yeah, at the time I was just a second year diagnostic resident. Essentially. But you knew you wanted to do IR at that time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 That's really, that's really a, a neat story because you saw this need there and you had what sounds like really 
enthusiastic and smart residents over there who are interested in not just general radiology, but IR specifically, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so those three that I mentioned, Aza, Ivan, Eric, they were all really passionate about IR and it was really, I don't know, I, I guess a fate in a way that, that we met and sort of were able to, you know, work together on this because for them at the time, they didn't really know how they were going to get their IR training. So one of them, Ivan is actually from from neighboring uh, Rwanda and they don't have any IR in Rwanda either, but he actually moved to Tanzania for its radiology training because he figured that there his chances of learning some IR are a little bit greater, even though they didn't have IR training at the time, but just because it's a bigger country, he figured maybe he can somehow learn some IR. So yeah, all of them are like really extremely passionate and it's just been uh, really fun working with them and sort of like growing this together over the past three years. So, and I'm in my final year of training here now, and they are in their final year of training there. And so we're basically all graduating uh, next year. And so how did they know about IR as a specialty when they were in this IR scarce situation? Yeah, just from reading about it uh, in books and, and online, they'd watched like YouTube videos and read books about it. And so they, they knew a good amount, but they had never done anything and uh, yeah so that that's where we started really from from absolutely nothing so when when i was there the first time we we actually did sort of the first image guided procedures and the very first procedure that was actually lung biopsy and we didn't have a radio opaque grid so so eric came up with with an idea and he said we can just use like a, a chicken wire and and we just put that on the patient and use that as the as the radio opaque grid and that's how we did the, the first oh. uh, image guided lung biopsy Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and so I guess fast forward, you guys put this program together and, and the rest of us all heard about it in the December 2019 JVIR, where you guys co-wrote the article, Tanzania IR Initiative, Training the First Generation of Intermetrial Radiologists, which, which stated basically, despite a population of nearly 60 million, there's currently not a single intermetrial radiologist in Tanzania. And it also, you guys, you know, gave some numbers just as a reference. In the U.S., there's more than 100 radiologists per 1 million people, of which approximately 10% are considered IRs. In contrast, in Tanzania, there's currently only one diagnostic radiologist per 1 million people. And so that's, I mean, obviously very inspiring to, to try and get something going. And so since its inception, can you update us on the, the progress that's been made and also can kind of maybe delve into how the IR training program is organized. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously when you're starting from nothing, it's pretty easy to make progress because any progress is progress. So in, in that sense, we have really made a lot of progress because like you were saying, like not even the most basic things were being done, like abscess drainage. It's like, it's hard for us to imagine that someone would show up with a huge, let's say like a pelvic abscess or like a perforate appendicitis and would not have the option of a simple image guided drainage, right? It's just, it's just hard to imagine here, yeah. but that, that was really the reality. You know, you have like kids there with like huge liver abscesses and the only option for them is open surgery and, you know, open surgery there, it's not like open surgery here. There, I mean, we've, we've encountered patients that had open surgical procedures and they basically make an incision from the sternum down to the pubic symphysis and just go and take a look because oh. they sometimes do surgery without prior imaging. 
So we had like one one patient, for instance, that uh, came with liver cysts and she had like a prior surgical drainage and they opened her up, like I said, from top to bottom just to drain a couple liver cysts. So, oh, wow. so anyways, so that's basically where we started. So, and what have we done since? So we've sent um, 14 teams to Tanzania. The first uh, teaching trip was exactly one year after I went there for the initial assessment. So that was in October, 2018. When I went there with Dr. Sullen, who's the uh, IR program director at Yale, and we brought with us a, a nurse and a technologist. And uh, then we've done one trip since every month, pretty much until February of this year when COVID started. So uh, we had to cancel all subsequent trips until now. And we're actually planning on restarting trips now in December. And in terms of the progress that has been made, so we've done about 450 uh, procedures so far over the past now two years. And while that isn't a lot, if you compare to an IR department here, it's, it's a lot more than the zero procedures that were done prior to that. We also now have like a dedicated IR section there. And most importantly, we have the uh, first accredited IR training program in all of Sub-Saharan Africa. So, you know, outside of Egypt, there isn't a single IR training program in, in all of Africa. So not even South Africa has an IR training program, which is wow. uh, hard, hard to imagine, but yeah. it's a reality. So they all go abroad to train. And as you can imagine, not everyone has the, the means to, to go to, let's say, Singapore or Turkey or the U.S. to train. So you essentially have one over 1 billion people in Southern Africa who don't have access to IR and they don't have access to IR because there's no IR training. And yeah, now we have three fellows in their second year. So it's a two-year fellowship. So they do their three, uh, three, three years of diagnostic radiology followed by two years of interventional radiology. So we have currently three fellows in their second and final year, and now six incoming fellows in their first year. So we have, we have nine fellows. It's a pretty big program by now, and it's really been uh, growing exponentially. And can you tell us a little bit about how they're, so you, you told us it's a two-year program. Can you kind of break it down? I guess we get it into the, the types of cases they see shortly, but it, is there, you know, separated by, are they on rotation for CT guided procedures versus vascular procedures, or is it all just kind of show up that day and, and they do whatever cases are on the board? Yeah, it, it's more like that because when we started in, in 2018 with the training, we started with only basic percutaneous stuff. So it was started with like corneal biopsies, abscess drainages, and the frostomy biliary drains. Those were the four procedures that we focused on first. And then we sort, sort of started slowly adding to that. So you now we've started doing uterine fibroid embolizations, splenic artery embolizations, central venous access, like dialysis catheters, Hickman's picks, et cetera. So no, we're not really separating by rotation. They, they just do whatever comes along. And it also depends on the faculty that go there. So often faculty that go there will have a specific goal and uh, to get something started. So when Dr. Newsom from Emory went there in uh, June of last year, she was the first to introduce uterine fiber embolization. And she went there with a the goal to, you know, try to get that started. And similarly now, Dr. Vin Takur from, from Florida, who's going um, now in December, he wants to get a PAD started. So he's bringing the appropriate equipment and they're already right now starting to uh, recruit appropriate patients. I actually just got off a, a phone call with the residents there and and then and and he wants to start doing some 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 arterial work and and do some some angioplasties and stenting 
so, so yeah, in that sense, you, we really just do what comes along and obviously you can't plan for everything. And if there's a, an, an acute urinary obstruction or biliary obstruction, of course, we're going to do it. So in, in that sense, it's kind of similar to IR training here. You know, I mean, at Yale, at least we just do, you know, whatever comes along and depending on what room you're, you're just going to do those cases. Right. Right. And obviously COVID has kind of put a wrench in the gears. You already mentioned with traveling volunteers. How has the program adapted from that February to, you, you say you're kind of reinitiating traveling in December. Have there been Zoom lectures, webinars for the trainees? How have you guys adapted to that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly what you're saying. So we, we I mean, we were always doing some uh, Zoom teaching even before, but we sort of uh, increased that. So that currently, I would say on average, we have like two, sometimes three uh, Zoom sessions per week with various faculty and that have been to Tanzania. So they will sort of often do like board review style sessions where it's just them and the, and the Tanzanian fellows like reviewing cases or doing little quizzes. And, but then we have WhatsApp groups, one, one WhatsApp group specifically is dedicated to like sort of quizzing the, the Tanzanian fellows. So some of the U.S. faculty will just post an image and then say, okay, what's this? What's the differential? What will you do about it? And yeah, so that, that's how most of the teaching has happened since COVID started. Yeah. And, but we're also working on some more sophisticated ways of supplementing teachings. For instance, we've started filming procedures at Yale and using a, a 360 degree camera. And we send uh, like an Oculus uh, headset to Tanzania so that they can sort of immersively review cases. So we're basically filming just like basic stuff, like uh, Permcat, uh, Hickman, like all that stuff, just for them to reinforce that and learn those steps. Because now that they didn't have any visiting teams for all that time, they've started doing more and more procedures by themselves. So like biopsies, nephrostomy, ability drains, and they're doing independently now on a, on a daily basis. And they've also started doing uh, central lines independently. And the next step is basically for them to start doing uterine fiber demolizations and, and of the procedures of that nature, even when there's no visiting faculty there. And they're ex extremely quick learners. And I mean, we, I, we recently actually analyzed the data so far from those 450 procedures, about 25% uh, were done independently. And the uh, technical success and the complication rates are actually slightly better for those procedures done independently, probably because they're playing it a little bit safer. So they're not doing any crazy stuff when there's no one there to no faculty there. But Overall, it's like extremely encouraging because they're, they're doing so well, even alone. Yeah, it sounds truly like see one, do one, teach one. And, and exactly. I'm, I'm sure much like our predecessors, you know, we had uh, Ernie Ring on and David Cumpy on recently to talk about history of IR stuff. And those guys kind of were forced to be innovative and just try things out and see what helps the patients. And so I, I imagine it's these, these residents and fellows are getting to experience some of that over there. Yeah, I, I have to say your your those episodes with uh, Dave Comfy and Ernie Ring were absolutely spectacular. I mean, I loved it. Actually, when I when I listened to that the one with David Comfy, I sent it. The first thing I did was I sent it to the residents in Tanzania, and I said that's exactly the mindset we need to have. Yeah, you need to have that that pioneer mindset. Like you can't be afraid. You have to really come up with new solutions. And yeah, I mean that that. David Comfy, that was just amazing. And what a career. And like, I mean, the stuff he came up with, it's just really mind boggling. Yeah. And he, he was rooted in Germany too. He, he, yeah, he did that stead in Germany and, and look at how much, I mean, that experience 
taught him and really laid the foundation for him to to be so innovative. Exactly. And I think it, it was so beautiful to see how sort of like the international collaboration, like when, we, right. when he went to Switzerland, he picked up something new, he brought it back to Colorado. And I think we need that, that spirit that he talks about this like innovation and sort of like the, the pioneering and the excitement that he had, like with every time he did a new procedure, that's exactly sort of what we're going through in Tanzania right now. Like yeah. those, those first three fellows are really the pioneers for their entire nation for for them they've like 60 million people sort of in a way depending on 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 them learning this stuff so i mean it's a lot of pressure in a way but it's also really exciting so and i think that all the faculty who to tanzania so far really sort of get that, that sense of ex excitement because here often when you, when you work in academia in particular i guess you sort of bog down with like a lot of the the day-to-day -day stuff and you don't even realize what you do as an intervention radiologist like how amazing it is and like when you go to Tanzania you really you see that uh, that magic of IR that you can really make a difference with with every single procedure yeah that's very exciting and and so question is the fellows that are finishing up this year will they stay on as faculty and help teach the future uh, fellows do you think yeah so so that's the plan so like I said, one of them actually is from Rwanda. So he's going to move back to Rwanda. So he's graduating next year in September. He's going to move back. And then we're actually planning on starting an IR training program in Rwanda next year in October. So he's he's already preparing for that. So he's already like sort of in negotiations with the health ministry in Rwanda, sort of how, how much they need to support him. And they're already building an Andrew room and, and starting to order equipment, et cetera. So that's going to be really exciting. Rwanda, well, it looks like a small country on the map. It's actually 10 million people. So also not, not irrelevant. Yeah. And, and he's an, a really amazing guy. And I think he, he's going to do a great job getting an academic training program started there. But then for the tens and trainees, yes. So our plan is essentially that at least two thirds of every class sort of stay in academia. And of course, some people are going to go and like, you know, open private practices and and go to other hospitals and that's totally fine. But, but, you know, as long as we're sort of retaining one third to two thirds of residents, which is not going to be an issue because actually a good amount of the trainees there are sort of like state sponsored trainees. So they basically have to stay in the public health uh, system. I gotcha. Gotcha. And obviously it takes more than just MDs to treat patients. Can you tell us a little bit about, and, and teach, can you tell us a little bit about the dedicated nurses and technologists that have also volunteered to, for their, for this project? Yeah. So, I mean, as you said, they are absolutely essential. I mean, as like, you can't do any IR procedure without a technologist and a, and a dedicated nurse. So, and we knew that from the start, which is why on every team, we make sure to have at least one nurse and one technologist with us. And Currently, we're training uh, four nurses and three technologists in, in Tanzania, and they're doing a, a great job so that by now, oh, actually, we can send teams sometimes without a nurse and technologist, like that's okay because they're so well-trained by now. And actually, two of the nurses, they are currently undergoing a moderate sedation training with anesthesia because when we first got there, the nurses didn't have any experience with moderate sedation because they were just diagnostic radiology nurses so they didn't have to sedate anyone so so then learning that from anesthesia now because currently we have anesthesia there for every procedure to administer the moderate sedation but then going forward we're hoping that that's no longer going to be necessary so they're going to get a certificate for for moderate sedation so that's a 
I think a great, um, you know, step forward in giving the nurses there some, some independence. Yeah. And are there any other groups of physicians like interventional cardiologists, vascular surgeons, or oncologists, anybody that you guys have traveled over there with that help supplement in terms of the training? Not, not really. So the, the way you have to think about it, it's, it's a huge hospital there. It's like a 3000 bed institution. So, I mean, it's like way bigger than, than Yale New Haven hospital. And uh, they actually have like pretty good care overall. So they've like sophisticated surgical services there. They've started doing uh, renal transplants recently. They're about to start hepatic transplants. They have most of these subspecialties and certainly there have been a lot of foreign institutions involved in building that over the past few decades. So for instance, Emory uh, basically built, built the emergency department there and there's a university from Norway uh, who's been involved with building the orthopedic department there. So yes, there are other groups that work there, but you know, most of them are sort of more advanced than where IR was when I went there. So right. we're not really directly coordinating with anyone, but uh, clearly I think that other sections there are very happy that IR got started now because you can imagine, especially when you have like a transplant center, I mean, how can you do anything uh, right. uh, without IR? I mean, like any, or not every complication, but a lot of the complications have to be uh, addressed by IR. Yeah. And along the same lines in terms of what they have available, what imaging equipment do, do, do they have? And then sort of what did, what were you guys able to bring over and, and maybe touch on what their needs are in the future? Yeah. So uh, what they have, uh, when I went there, I was actually sort of pleasantly surprised in terms of the imaging equipment because they had, they have a 64 slice uh, Siemens CT scanner. No, actually not. They have a 64 and then 128. And um, the 128 is sort of the main hospital where we are and the 64 is at a, at a different hospital. And th that's really state of the art Siemens somatome with the laser mark and everything. So really, really great. In terms of fluoroscopy, so uh, we're using a C-arm, which is decent. It, it does DSA. And soon we're actually going to get a dedicated angel room. So that's going to make things uh, a lot better. I mean, currently we're doing everything on, on the C-arm, which, which is fine, but, you know, it could be better. And in terms of ultrasound, they have great uh, capacity. I mean, they have a, a ton of ultrasound machines and really good ones. So no issue on that. But then where the problems really start is when you're talking about disposable equipment. So obviously when I first got there, there was nothing, like nothing, not even the most basic drainage catheter. So on the first trips, we really had to bring everything uh, with us. And so every, every team that goes there, uh, every person tries to bring at least one box with equipment. And, uh, but then we're, we're working on restarting procurement by the hospital there. So that that's underway. And we're actually in the process of making the first big order, big, I guess, relative, but we're talking about like about a hundred thousand dollars and, and that's going to probably last for uh, several months. So, so we're making progress, but disposable equipment is really uh, a huge challenge uh, as you can imagine. Yeah. And so in, in terms of disposable equipment, have you gotten much in terms of funding or resources from the device industry for disposables? Yes. I mean, uh, some, but obviously not enough because it could never be enough. But I, I have to say, I mean, for instance, Cook gave us a good amount of equipment when we, when we first started. Bay recently gave us like 20 vials of Lipiodol uh, because we want to start doing some, some taste. 
so yes, we, we have gotten support from, from different uh, companies. Also, uh, Burnham Medical donated about 20 LEDs. So we have more LEDs than we need now. So yes, we, we have gotten support, but the issue is really that we can't build a sustainable program based on donations, right? So what we really need is it's more companies to also start selling their products there. And so far, Merit and Argon are the only two companies that are willing to ship equipment directly to Tanzania. Okay, so that means like Boston Scientific, Cook, and many other companies, they don't have distributors in Tanzania. And that's a bit of an issue because it means you can't get that product, or at least you can't get it for a decent price. So the way to get it then is to buy it through South Africa or through Egypt. And of course, that causes a, an increase in price by sometimes more than 100%. So, you know, they will sell you like a, a Benson wire for, I don't know, $50, which is crazy. Right. And, and we'll try to sell, sell like an Amplitz wire for $80, $90 or even more and, and simple buyers guns. So I, I'm really hoping that as the program continues to grow, uh, more and more companies will sort of start to see the value and expanding to, to Africa. Because like I said, there's like 1 billion people without access to IR and I'm, I'm telling you, it's going to explode. It will, there will be such high demand and these training programs are going to start popping up all over Africa and only basically Africa is where the U S was in the seventies. Right. And you know, how quickly IR sort of developed from the seventies to the nineties and then to now, and the yeah. same thing is going to happen in Africa, if not faster. Yeah. And, and so. How can a, a trainee, whether it be resident or fellow or an IR in practice, get involved, whether it be obviously volunteering your time, but are there other ways that we can get involved? Yeah. So like I said, I'm the most obvious thing is going on trips. And I think that's sort of what most people um, enjoy the most. I mean, I certainly uh, love traveling and it's, and it's always a great time going there. And everyone that I, you know, that has gone, which is by now over 50 people, has really said that it's been like one of the most amazing experiences that they've had. And people have described it's really like life-changing just because you have a great time and you really have an impact. But yeah, anyone can get involved on any level. And the good news now is that we uh, actually this year got an RSA grant, Derek Howard National, the National Scholar Grant, over $74,000. And all that money is essentially going to travel. So I'm now able to pay for everyone's uh, trips. In the beginning, we had to rely on donations and people chipping in themselves. And now we can provide everything. I can pay everyone's tickets. We can provide housing. So it, it, it really, I think, makes it a lot smoother, the whole operation, because for the first year or so, we were constantly struggling and running out of money. And so now, now we don't have to worry about that anymore, at least for uh, a year. But you know, people that, especially now with COVID, don't, maybe don't feel comfortable traveling internationally can get involved with giving lectures and can get involved with, you know, just being active in the WhatsApp group, sharing interesting cases, helping with organization, helping with research. And we do a ton of research projects. We have a, we have a research call every weekend where we have at every time probably at least 10, 20 research projects ongoing. Uh, a lot of them are led by medical students, but of course we need faculty to oversee those, those research projects. So there's, there's really a lot going on and, and everyone that's interested can get involved at, at every level. And for those that like, let's say I'm concerning volunteering in 2021, how long are people usually, how long are those trips lasting? So usually people go for two weeks. 
that's the ideal time because one week is a little too short and especially because it's, you know, it's such a beautiful country. You really want to do a trip over the weekend. So usually over the weekend, people uh, go to Zanzibar, which is, you know, just amazing, like amazing beaches where you can go snorkeling and the dolphins and everything. So, I mean, it's just beautiful. Other people go on safari. Yeah, um, had amazing national parks. So it's just, I think, a good idea to stay for two weeks. So usually people fly in there on a Sunday, get some rest, and then sort of get started on Monday, do procedures Monday through Friday, and then go on safari or Zanzibar over the weekend, and then same thing for the second week, and then fly home on the subsequent Friday or Saturday, and then, you know, get back to work at home the following Monday. And and with COVID, are we looking at quarantining in either location, like either when you get there or when you get back? Do you know the restrictions on that? Yeah, so in Tanzania, you don't have to quarantine when you get there, but we require that people that fly there get COVID tested within 72 hours of departure and have a negative result before traveling. Because my biggest concern is actually bringing in COVID there. Because, I mean, as you can imagine, there's a lot more COVID in the U.S. than there is in in Tanzania. It actually hasn't been a big problem in Tanzania so far. So that's my biggest concern. And so I really want to make sure that people don't bring COVID into Tanzania. Uh, and then, of course, I would advise people to wear an N95 on their flight and also while they're there, basically the same precautions as here. My personal opinion is that I don't think we should shut down all global health efforts because of COVID, because, I mean, COVID is a global phenomenon and these, these disparities continue to exist. And actually now they're getting worse because of COVID. So there's really, in my opinion, no reason to just put all global health uh, projects uh, on, on, on hold. And I think we sort of have to start uh, getting active again, but of course, doing it in a smart way. So the same precautions that I apply when I'm, when I'm here at Yale doing procedures, I would apply there. So a typical day there now, so in the beginning, it was just percutaneous procedures, but a typical day there now is basically a really nice mix of procedures. So let's say you would start off with doing a bilateral nephrostomy in a young female with metastatic cervical cancer with urinary obstruction. And then you would go on to put a, a biliary drain in a really nicely dilated biliary system um, where you can get a nice left-sided access with, with ultrasound. We do a lot of biliary stenting. Um, and then in the afternoon, you could have like, let's say uterine thyroid embolization or a splenic artery embolization. So a typical day we do, I would say anywhere from four to six procedures. And then every now and then you sort of have like the odd case uh, come along. So for instance, when Dr. Newsom was there last year, one of the, one of the residents, I was sitting in the, in the CT room and uh, he was actually just pulling up some images from, for a different patient. And he sort of just noticed in the background that they're scanning something interesting. So he looked over there and was like, what's going on there? So this, the surgeons were in the room there and they were scanning a patient and um, that someone had lost a wire in. So, so this like first year resident in the emergency department apparently uh, dropped the wire in the patient when he was placing a, a central line uh, at bedside. And the, the surgeons that were in the CT control room were basically planning uh, right, right there and then how to crack open the chest and uh, try to get this wire out. Wow. And, and, and Ivan was like, uh, hold on. And they had already done like a cut down in the neck and tried to grab it, but it wasn't there anymore. So. It was now somewhere in the, in the IBC. And so Ivan was like, hold on guys, hold on guys. I, I think, I think we may be able to do something about this. Like he wasn't sure because I mean, he hadn't done this before, but he was, he was like, okay, let me talk to Dr. Newsom. So he went over, he was like, 
Dr. Newsom, is there anything we can do about this? And she's like, yeah, of course. And one of the, one of the nurses that came there with her actually happened to bring a snare with him. So we had one snare. And so she just got a IJ access and, and picked the wire out. And there was like 30 people in the room. I mean, like the surgeons were there, the emergency department were there. And like, it was like, for them, it was like absolute magic of yeah. like how someone can just like go in and, and, and pick the wire out in a matter of minutes. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think that, that really goes to show the kind of impact that IR can have, like this minimally invasive procedures that are currently just not available to 1 billion people in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. Talk about a great way to get the rest of the, the surgeons on board with building a, an IR program for them to, to, to see that. That's, that's awesome. Well, any, any last comments before we finish up? No, really want to thank you guys for, for having me. And I really want to invite anyone who's, who's interested in this to reach out. And there's a lot to do, not just in Tanzania, but in all of Sub-Saharan Africa. So I would really encourage people to also get new partnerships started with universities and in other countries. Like I said, we want to get started in Rwanda next year, but you know, the same situation applies to Uganda. The same situation applies to the Congo. So, you know, I mean, there's many, many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa and the, all of them need intervention radiology really urgently. And I think that we've sort of developed a successful model and I would be really happy if people want to copy that and want to apply it in, in other countries. Yeah, well, kudos to you and and your team and and uh, what, what a worthy cause. And I'm really excited to see the whole program continue to grow. And will you guys be publishing any data in JVR to follow up the original article? Yes. So we're actually in the in the process of submitting that. So we, like I said, we have about 450 patients now. So we're about to uh, submit that. So hopefully they'll be coming out within the next uh, couple of weeks or months. Awesome. Again, to our listeners, thank you for listening. And we will have links to the Road to IR in our show notes. Fabian, also, just if people want to follow what's going on, what, what are the social media handles? Yeah, so it's Road to IR. It's so a road and then number two IR. And uh, yeah, there you can really see a lot of what's going on. I mean, we try to post it pretty frequently. We're on Instagram and, uh, and Twitter and Facebook. But yeah, so if you really want to get an overview, just check out the Instagram. You can sort of uh, see what's going on there. Okay. Awesome. Thanks again, Fabian. Keep up the good work and uh, looking forward. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, I'll be able to make one of these trips here soon. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.